You see a theme verse there. Uh, If I had to pick one theme verse, this one would work well from Paul's letter to the Colossians. He says he is the image, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, supposed to say visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we, look, we are looking at the unseen world. But part of what we want to do is to help the unseen world be a little better seen. Uh, the unseen world is not completely unseen. The unseen world breaks into this world uh, in many ways, in many different places. Uh, we're going to be looking at the unseen world, things visible and invisible, all that God created. We'll be looking at angels and demons. Uh, this is a wonderful place, this sanctuary is a wonderful place to look at the uh, unseen world. Uh, I suspect there's probably some of you that may be in this sanctuary for the first time tonight. Uh, I'm sure you notice it's a beautiful sanctuary. Uh, We think it is probably the the last neo-Gothic sanctuary built in America. It is not that old. It was only opened in 1968. And there's not been a lot of neo-Gothic sanctuaries built since then for a lot of reasons. So this may very well be the last neo-Gothic sanctuary built in America. It is a very old style. And part of the old style is for this purpose. It is to remind us that when we worship in this place, worship is a meeting of heaven and earth. Now, you know, I think we've so dumbed down worship in so many places and we've taken the altar and made it um, a stage that we forget what worship is. But worship is the meeting of heaven and earth. And when we come, Paul, Paul even says angels join us when we worship. When we worship, it is a meeting of heaven and earth. Worship should be one of those thin places where heaven and earth come very, very close to each other. That's the purpose for these stained glass windows. You're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Quoting Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Don't ever forget we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Don't ever forget that the communion, we believe in the communion of saints. We say that in our historic creed. What we mean when we say we believe in the communion of saints is that the church is one. There's not a church on earth and a church in heaven. The church is one. The church is made up of all people who believe in Jesus Christ. Everyone that belongs to Jesus belongs to everyone that belongs to Jesus. That's the communion of saints. We are one, whether on earth or in heaven, we are one. We're not two churches, we're one. Our fellowship, our communion should be sweet and should be eternal. And uh, when we worship, we join together in worship there. You know, in a traditional church such as ours, at least in traditional worship, when we do uh, Holy Communion, One of the things that you will respond to me with is, therefore, with the angels and all the hosts of heaven, we join their unending hymn, holy, holy, holy. We we join their hymn, they join our hymn when we worship. Um, I'm not sure what a lot of Americans think worship is, but worship is a meeting of heaven and earth, and sometimes architecture helps us with that. One of the reasons, historically, for this very, very high ceiling is to help you lift your eyes heavenward when you come into this place. Lift your minds heavenward when you come into this place. So um, I'm glad that you're going to join me as we talk about the unseen world and uh, struggle to make the unseen world just a little more seen in our lives. Uh, Here's my aim for four nights. I want to change the way you view reality. I want to change the way you read the Bible. Most Americans, most of us captured, captivated by the West, we are um, captured by a materialistic worldview. We have to work in this culture, even with Christian people, we have to work in this culture to convince you that um, the spiritual world is more real than this world. We get really confused. We think this is the real world, 
and then maybe there's something after that. Um, I will probably quote C.S. Lewis occasionally. <laughs> but you need to understand C.S. Lewis, like because he was a good, orthodox, historic Christian. He was adamant that this world is the shadow lands. The next world is the real world. We get confused about that. We think our little period of time on this side is, is the sum total of reality. And it's because in the West, since the Enlightenment, uh, we are captivated by materialist worldview. And, um, you know, that's why it's just fascinating to me that there are people trying to embrace the Christian faith with a worldview that doesn't embrace spiritual reality. That's just really illogical in my mind. And if you do move beyond that to really embrace spiritual reality, let spiritual reality be as real, if not more real, than this world. If you move to that point, um, you know, really begin to look at the world differently around you. Uh, C.S. Lewis did say he wanted to help Westerners, Europe, Western European Americans, to have, to have their worlds re-enchanted. There are angels present with us right here. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. The communion of saints is one and eternal. It's a sweet fellowship, and we don't lose that fellowship. That fellowship is not ended when somebody passes to the other side. So I hope to change your worldview, or at least begin changing your worldview, and uh, hopefully change the way you read the Bible. In the Bible, if, if you look at all of the references to angels, and then add all of the references to God being Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, who are the hosts? Those are the angels. If you add up every time angels are mentioned, and if you add, up, add to that every time God is referred to as Lord of hosts, there are 500 references to angels in the Bible. And you live as if they don't exist. We live as if they don't exist. So uh, I want to encourage you to embrace the Christian faith, which means embracing a Christian worldview. And uh, be, be, be able to define reality differently. Let God define reality. Let God define truth, uh, not the culture around us or the world around us. Um, you can't study angels empirically, like in a laboratory, but we are going to study angels. And uh, we believe that God has the final say regarding what truth is. So uh, we can study angels and not just be um, whistling in the dark. We, we can believe that what we're saying really is God's view of reality. So I hope that you come away from this week as we seek to immerse ourselves in this literature. I hope that you'll come away from this week uh, seeing the world around you differently. Allow the world to be reanimated with spiritual beings. And um, read the Bible differently. So, uh, we are going to start with part one, Angels in the Old Testament. Uh, you see a little section there I've, I've listed as Introduction to Angels. Uh, there's a few, particularly in the Hebrew, there's a few different words for angels. The most common word for angels in the Hebrew Bible is uh, malak, singular, a malakim, uh, kim, uh, plural. Uh, I-M usually means is plural. Uh, malakim is the word usually in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament for angels. Angelos is the word for angel in the New Testament. Uh, malakim means, um, can mean servant or messenger. Angelos definitely means messenger. So angels are servant messengers. And God has populated the universe with them. So take your Bibles. And, you know, some of these texts we'll look at quickly. Some we will uh, linger over for a while. Um, do whatever makes you comfortable. You know, um, do whatever makes you comfortable. So as, as we introduce ourselves to the topic of angels, uh, in the book of Hebrews, 
And by the way, Hebrews sounds like it belongs in the Old Testament, but of course it's, it's New Testament. It is a book written to Hebrew Christians who are in danger of going back to their Hebrew faith. So the book of Hebrews is an extended, sustained argument as to why they should not go back to the Jewish faith, but to keep embracing their Christian faith. Uh, Hebrews is, is not the easiest book you'll read in the New Testament. Uh, because in a lot of ways it's highly spiritual. It's almost platonic. You don't need to worry about what that is. But Plato came before the Christian faith. And it's almost platonic uh, in that you see uh, this is where we learn that this world is the shadowlands. The real world's on the other side. This world is but shadowy images of the next life. Uh, the book of Hebrews is the one that tells us that. Over and over. So I do commend the book of Hebrews to you when you read it because um, it is based on a spiritual worldview. When you read it, just uh, celebrate what is easily understandable and keep working out what you don't understand. But we're not surprised that in the book of Hebrews we get, we get some definitions for angels. Uh, look in chapter 1, look at verse 7. Of the angels, he says, and now he's quoting Old Testament, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So uh, you may know in the Hebrew and in the Greek, wind and spirit, the same words. So angels are spirit beings. Uh, they're flames of fire. Whenever they appear, contrary to Hollywood, whenever they appear in the scriptures, they terrify people. Um, because they're flames of fire. They're brilliant. They're glorious. Whenever they manifest, uh, they terrify people. That's why when you look through the Scriptures, almost the first thing any angel says is fear not, because it's terrifying. Uh, they are spirit. They, they present as flames of fire. Then if you look at the last verse of chapter 1, you get a definition for angels. Chapter 1, verse 14 of Hebrews. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Um, they are messengers. They are servant messengers. One of the things that I will relish doing for four nights is attacking your Hollywood image of angels. Um, it's a little sad to me, but a lot of Christians in this culture, that's where they get their doctrine of angels. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in Christian tradition, ever, anywhere, is there any thought that when people die, they become an angel. That would be a demotion for you, by the way, if you died and became an angel. Angels are a created order, like the book of Hebrews says, they're a created order that serve us. They serve God. They serve God by serving us. They're ministering spirits to us. So, um, yeah, I love reading obituaries. Sometimes I wish I didn't because I see some real weird... They think they're speaking Christian theology. Um, we don't become angels when we die, and that would be a demotion for you and for me. And as a matter of fact... There's very little evidence. I'll show you where you do find it eventually. There's very little evidence in the Bible that angels have wings. You know, I'll see things about you die, you become an angel, and you get your wings. Well, that's Jimmy Stewart and whatever that Christmas show was. I mean, I mean it's not Bible. Um, again, if you're going to play football, learn what football is. If you're going to live the Christian life, learn what Christian, the Christian faith is. Um, we will look eventually at cherubim and seraphim. The, the angelic world is, is, a, is a hierarchy. Um, and, and seraphs, seraphim and cherubim, they, they are mentioned as having wings. But they're only one particular order of angels. Uh, in all the other appearances of angels... In the Bible, there's no reference to wings. Um, that's Hollywood. That's medieval art that influenced Hollywood. So you see um, some definition here in the book of Hebrews as, as, as far as what an angel is. Uh, look at the next text in front of you. Go to Psalm 82. Psalm 82, verse 1. It's an amazing text. Um, 
and I've seen it rock some people's theological world, which is not hard to do if you don't read much of this book. You may always be finding something in here you don't know is in here. But if you look at Psalm 82, verse 1, here's a verse that's rather typical in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. Um, Here's Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So there's a divine council. And in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. What's really interesting in the Hebrew here is the word Elohim is mentioned twice. Elohim is a name for God. But here, Elohim is holding counsel with Elohim. So we know there's only one God. There's only one great and majestic God. But there's, there's heavenly, angelic, spiritual beings. They form the counsel of God. And that's why we can, we can look at the grammar of the Hebrew Bible and know when Elohim means God or when Elohim means maybe angels. And by the way, you do the same thing with English is the word sheep, singular or plural. It can be either. You have to look at the grammar. You have to look at the verbs to know whether you mean singular or plural. Elohim is that way. It's a name for God, but it's also used as a name for the gods, little g. And those are just the members of the heavenly court. Those are the angelic beings that that people the universe. And um, so that, that's an amazing verse there in, in Psalm 82. Show you another one while you're in the book of Psalm. Go to Psalm 104, 103, sorry. 103, verse 20. We're working on a definition of angels, who these creatures are. And they are creatures they were created by God. Um, so if you look at 103, verse 20 and 21. You see that the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones. That's called Hebrew parallelism. Angels and mighty ones are saying the same thing. So obviously angels are mighty ones. Again, that's why they have to say when you encounter them, they will say, Fear not. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of the Lord. Uh, bless the Lord, all the host. Again, when you see the host referenced in the Bible, that's his an angelic world. Bless the Lord, all his host, his ministers, his servants who do his will. Again, angels are servants. They serve God. And one of the ways they serve God is by serving us, by helping us. Uh, I want to read something to you. One of my favorite philosophers, theologians, that's still alive. I heard him last January down in Charleston. Uh, you see his birth date there. I got it listed for you. Peter Kreft, or Kreeft, however you want to say that. Um, he teaches at Boston College, a great man of faith. He's written an, an amazing number of books. I think he's the best philosopher alive today um, to um, give you convincing proofs, convincing rational arguments for living and embracing the Christian life. He has a book, uh, one of his many, he has a book entitled Angels and Demons. What do we really know about them? And I just love this really short section here where he asks the question, what have angels done in past history? And it's just a couple paragraphs, but it really does summarize, it really does summarize the Bible. And I love the way he writes. This is what he says. What have angels done in past history? Angels were created before the dawn of time. They sang at the creation of the world. Job says that. Some rebelled against God, became demons or devils, evil spirits, and set up hell's lowerarchy as opposed to heaven's hierarchy. One of them was the snake in the grass that tempted us to give up paradise Angels were instrumental at every major stage of God's plan to get us back on the road to paradise. They surrounded the life of Abraham, the first of God's chosen people. They announced to Sarah, his hundred-year-old laughing wife, that she would have a miracle baby. 
They stopped him from making a human sacrifice of Isaac. They saved Abraham and his nephew Lot from the foretaste of hell that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. They came to Jacob in the desert on a ladder, back and forth like 18-wheelers on that busy highway to heaven. One picked up the prophet Habakkuk by the hair and whisked him 700 miles away. Angels came to old women and to old men, to the blind and the poor, to shepherds and fleeing criminals, but not to kings or politicians. One came to a teenage Jewish girl as an ambassador of her creator and meekly asked her permission in his name to use her womb as his door into our world. And because she said yes to his angel, we have Christmas and Easter and the hope of heaven. And when the Creator became a shivering, hairless, wet little baby, surrounded by scruffy sheep and drooling cows, they exploded over the night sky like a million close-encountered motherships. And when 33 years later he had to muster up the courage in the Garden of Gethsemane to jump into the cross-shaped pit of hell, they were there to comfort him. And when he burst the doors of the dead wide open, they were there at the stone door to announce it to the women, who in turn, playing angel, as they always have, related to the slower men. And when he leaped back home into the sky, they reminded his friends, who stood gaping up at the gap in the sky, that he would return and that they had better get busy spending the rest of history getting his landing field ready. And when he comes again, they will be there, blowing the sky in half with their trumpets and taking us home when Daddy calls us to put away our toys. As they sing time's beginning, they will sing its end. When the firmament is folded back like a book turned to its last page, the end. That's Peter Kreeft. Uh, recommend all of his books to you. Brilliant, brilliant mind. He's getting a little age on him. He's going to be a great loss for us when he steps on the other side. But that's just a quick summation of what we know that angels have done just recorded in the Bible. And some of you have missed most of that. Angels have been very, very, very busy in human history and in salvation history. So that's an introduction to angels. That's who they are. Uh, They are creations of God. They're not eternal like God, but they've been created by God. They are created as servant messengers to serve God, primarily by serving us. And they've been very, very busy in the Bible. So with that, let's, let's look at just some of the passages. And I tried to pick some that you probably didn't hit on in Sunday school. Um... When you were in Sunday school, if you were in such a thing. Uh, 1 Kings 19, 3 through 8. You don't need to turn there because I, I, let me just tell you about that story. It's a familiar story. You know, after the prophet Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal, and he thought that evil would just roll over dead, Ahab and Jezebel did not. And um, they just said, we, we will kill you, Elijah. So he just ran and ran and ran and traveled and traveled and traveled. Went all the way up in uh, the northern part of Israel, all the way down to Mount Horeb, which is also called Mount Sinai, back to the, where it all began for the, the Hebrew people. And he went there and he, uh, you remember, First uh, Kings 19, he went there and he had a pity party which he deserved one. He was tired. He was exhausted. Evil didn't roll over and give up when he defeated the prophets of Baal. Uh, Ahab and Queen Jezebel said, we're we're coming after you, Elijah. So he went down to where it all started. He went down to Sinai. He went down to Horeb, same place. And that's where um, he encountered God, uh, that still small voice. He encountered God. But you notice before he encountered God, Who did he encounter? What did he encounter? An angel. An angel fed him. You know, original angel's food cake. The angel fed him. 
and gave him the strength to continue on in his journey. Uh, you probably did get that story in Sunday school, Elijah being ministered to by an angel. Uh, let me show you one of my favorite texts, though, that most people don't even know exists. It's the next one, 2 Kings chapter 6, 15 through 17. In 2 Kings, you're, you are getting into the, the, the ministry of Elisha, uh, the successor to Elijah. You're getting into the ministry of Elisha, and uh, these foreign empires are coming at Jerusalem. They're coming at Jerusalem. Well, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, um, here comes the king of Syria with all of his army to uh, lay siege, lay siege to the, uh, to the Israelites. Um, and they're all sort of freaking out because they can't see what Elijah can see. So look at chapter 6, verse 15. When the servant of the man of God, this is Elisha's servant, when the servant of the man of God, Elisha, uh, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he sees the Syrian army. He sees the Syrian army that's coming against him. Verse 16, Elijah said, he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Well, again, the servant of Elijah is looking around. He's seeing nobody except angry Syrians coming after him, surrounding them. Verse uh, 17, Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Um, there were angel armies all around them. Uh, Elisha knew that. Uh, the rest of the um, Israelite soldiers, they were like this servant to Elisha. The only thing they could really see was the problem before them with the, with the Syrian army. Uh, Elijah prayed, and God granted uh, the servant the, the opportunity and the ability to see all of the horses and chariots of fire. You, you don't know the number of angels that have come to your aid. You don't know the number of angels that have fought for you. You don't know the number of angels that have intervened in your life. You don't know how many battles in your life have been won by God's servant messengers. But I hope you believe it's happened. And I hope you believe it will continue to happen. And even though you may not have eyes to see the hills full of these horses and these chariots of fire, just like Elijah had been taken up in, believe they're there. Um, you know, don't be one of those people that can only believe what you see. You're going to have a really tough time with the Christian faith. You know, if you only believe what you see, when we have Holy Communion, you're going to think I'm just giving you bread and juice. No matter how many times I say the body and blood of Christ, you're going to just see bread and juice. You've got to learn to see differently. You've got to have a worldview that sees a world animated with God and the spiritual realm. Uh, you can't read the Bible otherwise. Uh, it's not surprising that a lot of these texts, I'm still in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the Second Kings 19.35, that's where, again, they are faced by Sennacherib. They're faced by an Assyrian army. And even though they're faced by an Assyrian army, one angel, the angel of the Lord, and I need to talk about that in a moment, the angel of the Lord comes and kills 185,000 Assyrians. They go back. Assyria. They're defeated by one angel on behalf of the Israelites. A couple things. I do believe that angels particularly have been involved in the, um, in the defense of the people of Israel. Um, you know, someone asked Pascal one day, what's the greatest argument for God? And he just said, the Jews. The fact that they still exist. 
There's no reason they should be exist. They've been the most hated people on human, uh, in human history. They should have been eradicated centuries ago. But they have a re- unique relationship to God and they're still around. So you see angels, particularly such as this, uh, where angels come to the defense of the Israelites. Uh, you do hear, as you look particularly at the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. I'm sorry that I always do that. Here, I don't mind calling it Old Testament. Uh, if you were Jewish, I would not call it Old Testament because when you say Old Testament to a Jewish person, they, they hear that as rather offensive because we have a New Testament. They have the Old in Need of Improvement Testament. <laughs> That's why particularly you've got Jewish friends. Uh, if you're in the, acad- the academy, we tend to say the Hebrew Bible. But if I mean, for us, it is the Old Testament. But don't... don't don't tell your Jewish friends unless, if you, want to, if you want to evangelize them for the sake of Christ, don't irritate them too much. Um, if you want to introduce them to Christ, don't, you know, don't destroy the bridge between you and them. And one of the ways of destroying the bridge is saying, you know, you've got that old, outdated testament, but we got the new and improved. You want me to tell you about it? Uh, so yeah, they have a Hebrew Bible. So I, I apologize for the number of times I, I find myself saying Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. We, we in the Christian community call it our Old Testament. Uh, but in the Old Testament, sometimes you'll hear an- angels referenced. Sometimes you'll hear an- the angel of the Lord referenced. And sometimes it, it's not clear who the angel of the Lord is. Sometimes it could be an angelic being. But as you're reading the text, by the time you finish the text, um, like with Jacob wrestling with an angel, but he starts off wrestling with an angel. By the time you finish the text, it sounds like he's wrestling with God. So who's he wrestling with? The angel of the Lord could be a special angel, emissary from God, sent to do a special task. Or the angel of the Lord, um, and we've said this for 2,000 years, could be an expression, um, a theophany of the pre-incarnate Christ. You know, for instance, we'll eventually look at, well, I'll go ahead and tell you about it now. Another place where you see one like the sons of men, there in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. One like the sons of men. Who is that one? Well, it could be an angel. It could be the angel of the Lord, a special emissary from uh, God, or it could be the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, we, it's not easy to tell. Usually, the, uh, you can go about either way in, in, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so you hear angels, angel of the Lord, angel of the Lord can be a special emissary. Because I am going to introduce you, there are two named angels in the Bible. Who are they? Gabriel and Michael. There are two angels named in the Bible. Uh, We know they're called Archangel in the book of Jude, or Michael's called Archangel in the book of Jude. We have some other writings from the Jewish community, the book of Tobit, that lists seven archangels. So again, we know more about angels than just what we have in the Bible. But uh, So when we look in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, we see angels, angels of the Lord. It could be a special emissary coming on behalf of God, or it could be a a pre-incarnate Christ uh, coming to be with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego there in that fiery furnace. So um, I've got listed for you there the cherubim and seraphim. Isaiah 6 is a pretty familiar text. I won't make you turn to Isaiah 6. That's when Isaiah is grieving the death of his beloved king. And he goes to the temple. I'm editorializing a little bit. He goes to the temple and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. He sees God enthroned. And he sees the cherubim and the seraphim around God. And uh, they do have angels. They do have wings. Those angels do have wings. You know that story. So again, we know the Bible talks about powers and principalities and hierarchy. We know that there's archangels. We know that there's cherubim. We know that there's seraphim. Uh, so there's, there's an order to the angels. That shouldn't surprise you when you look at creation, when you look at life. God is a God of order, not confusion. God likes order. So there is an order uh, to the realm of the angels. That's why I have cherubim and seraphim. 
And again, the cherubim and the seraphim, even look, if you look there in, in, in Isaiah 6, they are frightening. They are so majestic and so otherworldly, they're frightening. So the cherubim are not like the cute little cherubs that you see in medieval artwork. Don't know where all that came from. But the cherubim, that's just a cherub in the plural, cherubim. Um, they, they are those who attend to the throne of God. You see them there in the book of Isaiah. I've mentioned the Daniel passage 3, 16 through 25, um, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to yield to Nebuchadnezzar, and they get thrown into the fire, and um, they say with great faith, our God is able to deliver us from the fire, but if he doesn't, that's okay too. Go back and read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I was, I'm glad I was taught Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when I was growing up in Sunday school. So they do go to the fiery furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar uh, heats it to seven times what it's normally heated. He's so angry at these rebellious Jews in his realm. But then he looks, and one like a son of man is in there with them. You know, an angel... There's a pop Christian song that I really love entitled Another One in the Fire. It comes from Shattered Meshach and Abed. When you're in the fire, you're not in it by yourself. Don't let, don't let your human vision delude you. When you're in the fire, when you're in a fiery time, you're not in it by yourself. There's another one in the fire with you. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And of course, uh, Daniel 6, 22. And again, I'm so glad I was raised in Sunday school. I learned about Daniel in the lion's den. And most people know that he was put in the lion's den. What they may not know, it was an angel that shut the mouths of the lions. That's the kind of thing angels do for us. Now, where I want to end the night is an amazing, fascinating text that will tell us so much about the spiritual world. So I do want you to turn to Daniel chapter 10. Turn to Daniel chapter 10. This is going to be an amazing text that chances are strong. You've never looked at it. I hope you have. I hope that you know it's there, and I hope this will be just simply reviewed for you. But it is an absolutely amazing text. We learn a lot about uh, the cosmic realm. We learn a lot about the unseen world when we look at Daniel chapter 10. So find your way there toward the end of the Old Testament. The children of Israel uh, from the city of Jerusalem and region or surrounding it have been carried off into captivity. Uh, Daniel, of course, uh, there in Babylon, which then becomes Persia, uh, he kind of rises to, to prominence there under Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar and is, was his name, and under Nebuchadnezzar he rises to power. So he has a place of prominence there. Um, Cyrus has come along, the Persian, and Cyrus is allowing Jews to go back to Jerusalem after, after the exile. He's allowing some Jews to go back. So um, that's starting to happen. We're around the year 536 B.C. That's starting to happen. We know it's 536 B.C. because look at chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus the king of Persia, and we have a lot about Cyrus the king and a lot of history. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was delivered to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. So this word that Daniel is receiving is causing great conflict. And you're going to see the result of that in a moment. And he understood the word and he, he had understanding of the vision. Well, we can almost guess what the vision is or what the word is because look at verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Why is he so upset? Um, we don't know exactly, but we sh that doesn't keep us from making an educated guess. One of the things he's watching is that even though S S Cyrus says that the Israelites, the Jews can go home now, 
Most of them don't. Most of them don't. You know, after you live somewhere for 40, 50 years, it starts feeling like home to you. So most of them don't pick up and choose to move back to Jerusalem. So that's grieving Daniel. The other thing that's grieving Daniel is he's getting reports back as to how badly in decay the city of Jerusalem is. So um, those are probably two good reasons why you see him mourning for three weeks and he goes into a partial fast. All fasts are not completely abstinence from food. Uh, you've, you Wesley people, you've seen our Wesley Weekly. Uh, we are encouraging you to, to join us on a 40-day fast as we get to our church vote on August the 27th. Uh, one of the things I'll be talking to you about is there's lots of ways to fast. There's lots of things from which we may fast. What I, what I will encourage you to do um, is consider what in history we call the Wesley Fast, named after John Wesley, who actually stole it from the New Testament, period. And the Wesley Fast is simply fasting on, um, on Wednesdays and Fridays to about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, two meals. That's the Wesley fast. Uh, so that is a fast. You don't have to just go for 40 days eating nothing. Uh, fasting is a spiritual discipline. Um, some of you need to fast from Facebook. Some of you need to fast. The list can go on. Anything that's controlling your life can be the good object of a fast. And there's partial fast. Uh, uh, here you see a Daniel fast. And he's just fasting from delicacies and meat and wine. He's fasting just very simple food. Maybe he's skipping some meals. But in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, you see fasting and prayer going together. One of the things, that, one of the things that's happening around the world today, this, um, we do see God doing amazing things around the world, um, particularly in places like Africa. We see God doing amazing things. One of the reasons we see such an amazing move of God in this age is uh, people are waking back up to prayer and fasting. So I encourage you to, you know, when G, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, when you fast. He didn't say if you fast. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you fast, when you give alms, when you pray. Not if you fast, if you give alms, if you pray. He assumes we will. It, it, it is a hardcore central Christian tradition. comes from the Jewish faith. So here you see Daniel fasting. His Daniel fast is no delicacies, no meat or wine. Uh, he doesn't anoint himself uh, for these full three weeks. Now I want you to watch what's happening in the unseen realm. Uh, verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, remember where he's at, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphrates around his waist. That's some really good gold. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. That's what angels look like if they choose to manifest themselves. They don't look like, what was the man's name on It's a Wonderful Life? Clarence, yeah. Angels do not look like Clarence. Here's a biblical picture of angels. Voice like the sound of the multitude. Verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them and they fled and hid themselves. We don't always know when we're in the presence of, of angels. Uh, we may have a hint that we're in the presence of angels. But we don't always have a complete manifestation that we're in the presence of of an angel. So the people around Daniel did not see what Daniel saw. Verse 8, so I was left alone and saw this great vision and no strength was left in me. Yeah, Clarence won't do that to you. No strength was left in me. My radiant or my normal, my optimistic appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. This is a normal, natural response. To an angel. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face 
in deep sleep with my face to the ground. He like falls into a trance because he's here encountering an angel. But I want you to notice what this angel tells him. This is where we get an amazing glimpse of uh, the unseen realm. Verse 10, And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. So he's getting up from being flat, prostrate. He's getting up. He's on his hands and his knees. Verse 11, And he, this angelic being, said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved. I'm sure he was glad to hear that because he was scared to death. But the angel said, um, O Daniel, man greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood all the way up, trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not. Angels always have to say that. Fear not, Daniel. For from the first day, watch this, from the first day, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. Your prayer. Your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. But now here's what you don't notice that's going on in the unseen realm. Look at verse 13. So he said, God has heard your words from the first day you prayed them. And he kept praying, which we're glad he kept praying because we're going to read the rest of the story. We're glad that he kept praying because if you notice in verse 13, you're going to see what happens in the unseen realm as a result of Daniel's praying. The prince, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. This is an angelic being who uh, had some authority over the kingdom of Persia. And this angelic being withstood the angel that was being sent to Daniel. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, here's one of the places we get the name. But Michael, one of the chief princes, um, he's called Archangel in the book of Jude. One of the chief princes came to me for help. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So you see what happened? Daniel prayed. An angel was dispatched. But because of the struggle in the cosmic realm, uh, an evil angel... Prince of Persia withstood the angel that was being dispatched to Daniel until Michael, the great archangel, intervened. Now you did also, by the way, hear that Daniel didn't just pray on that first day and stop. He kept praying. Here's an illustration of the power of intercession. This is what you do when you pray. When you pray heaven and hell... Get engaged. And you're making a difference. And sometimes we have to persist in prayer. You know, we don't know what would have happened if Daniel had quit praying on day number 20. If he would have ever gotten his angel. But that angel was coming dispatched on the first day. But he was being withstood by an evil angel. And it took Michael to help that angel come through to Daniel. So... You know, we don't even realize the cosmic struggle that's going on around us. One of the things I hope we do realize is when you look at the struggle on earth, the struggles on earth, they are but, again, back to C.S. Lewis in the Shadowlands. Where's the real world at? It's not here. What's going on here is representations, shadows of what's going, in the real, going on in the real world, the cosmic world, the unseen world. Just let that kind of sink in for a little bit. I hope your world just got broadened dramatically. I hope your world just kind of got larger than High Point, North Carolina. I hope the power of your prayer life just got much, much, much greater. Uh, this is the way the Bible talks about the unseen world. This is the way the Bible talks about the powers and principalities. And we haven't even gotten the New Testament yet. Angels are all over the place in the New Testament. And that's what we're going to do tomorrow night is move on with angels into the New Testament. So thank you for your attention.
Y'all could be in a whole lot of places tonight besides here. Let's pray together. God, I'm so grateful for these people that will give attention to you, attention to your word, attention to your work in this world, and your work in the unseen realms. And Lord, we know that what we see is certainly not, not all that there is. So God, open our eyes to see you in your great, great glory, to see all that you've created, to see your wonderful creation, both visible and invisible. And God, we give you thanks for all that you do to defend us. We give you thanks for all that you do to fight our battles. We give you thanks for the comfort from truly knowing your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Oh, by the way, you'll also see on the end, after the New Testament section, you see supplemental reading down at the bottom. Um, And I've listed some John Wesley sermons for you. And, you know, I'm realistic. You probably didn't wake up this morning thinking, I want to read some John Wesley sermons. (laughs) I woke up this morning hoping you'd read some John Wesley sermons. Um, what, What I'm giving you there are sermons... Uh, that are especially connected to our topics. And those are not the best-known sermons of Wesley. I can't find many Methodists who will even read his sermon on hell. And he preached a sermon on hell. So, what I'm making available to you, there are the sermons. You see the supplemental reading after the angels. You see the supplemental reading after, after the demons. I've given you some names of John Wesley's sermons. I've made your life easy. Um, I get no royalties, but the church purchased this hot-off press, brand new volume called Yearning for the Heavenly Country, Sermons on the Spiritual Realm by John Wesley. And all the sermons I've listed are in here. These are not the most famous sermons Wesley preached. You'll also notice if you read these, uh, and he does everything from the great judgment, the great size, to the final creation, of that. Go in peace. Make sure you meet someone you don't know and uh, make some new friends.